it's another episode of I Am The Night, our weekly breakdown of Batman the Animated Series, and it's our 17th episode, and we're covering the 15th episode of the show called See No Evil, written by really prolific and very well-known comics writer Martin or Marty Pasco, who did some brilliant work on Batman, um, the Batman Adventures, which is the comic based on the show. He also wrote Swamp Thing just before Alan Moore took over, and like um, many other Batman the Animated Series directors, also got his own uh, nom de cream as an Arkham Escapee as Pasty Marco. But um, speaking of Arkham Escapees and uh, partners in crime, with me, as always, is Mr. Adam Ray. Hello again, it's a pleasure to be back on what I would say is a rather offbeat, homespun tale of Batman defending innocence once again in a rather light in its tone but not in its themes really down to earth story I'd say it's it's a weird one um Dan Reber's direction is bordering on the classic universal monster movies it, it's directed it's particularly the opening scenes almost like a horror movie and, and Monty Pasco's written a tale of a, a villain who is definitely a villain but Again, just the guy who wants to see his daughter. He's... Honestly, you can't really fault him in this endeavour. And I think that's one of the big things I was able to pick up on. Because the opening scene is so evocative of like a noir 1940s monster movie. Like The Invisible Man or Hollow Man or such. That I was able to sort of roughly guess the plot. But I was still drawn in enough by the fact that... Sure, we can't really fault this uh, Ventrix character. He's just a man determined to do right by his daughter, even though he's been on opposite sides of the law. Of course, as the episode goes on, we see different sides of his perspective that we can't quite reason with, but there's a there's a side we can relate to in this character. Oh, definitely, because it's one of those typical cases, particularly in this show, where it highlights that just because someone's a villain doesn't mean that they're necessarily evil. He's a man who's doing all the wrong things, literally. I mean, the fact that he's been in prison before this story even begins. He's doing all the wrong things, but for the right reasons. But keeping up the life of crime and being a thief isn't the way to get back in the good books of your family, no matter how well you dress yourself. He makes a real effort in the middle of the episode to try and show how much he's changed and how good he looks and how determined he is to do right by his ex-wife and his daughter but it's very clear that whatever he had done in the past is heavy enough for his ex-wife to very rightly not want to have anything to do with him so we feel maybe a little bit more for him going on towards the middle of the episode but we see the effects of the means he's using the new means he's using to try and get something behind him and we see that sure maybe it is for the best that there is a little bit of distance and it's an interesting way to handle that kind of a story, I would say. Definitely. But what do you make... Again, I, I was really blown away by the way this story was put together visually by Dan Reber. Like I said, the opening montage, you almost... If you didn't come in knowing this was an episode of Batman the Animated Series, you'd think this was an attempt at a House of Secrets or or some kind of horror cartoon, because... The whole thing with the gate opening and the wind and 
the invisible creature talking to the little girl, it was actually scary. It's because of the way that that opening scene was framed. It was a real great piece of TV and film noir. We see this blonde, blue-eyed, doughy little girl, Mm. and we hear this insidious, unclear voice, and we see the way it interacts with the room. So we clearly know that it's a physical presence that's very invisible. It opens the window. You see the bed deep dip down as he sits down. He produces the locket from somewhere. There's very clearly a presence there, for a little girl, it's very easy to get swept along with the fact that this is either like an invisible man or some mystical presence that's looking out for her and giving her gifts. So she's pulled along by the pretense, but the presence we feel, especially the lights and sing-songy voice he puts on, mm. even just very much not himself, to try and make himself seem more amiable because he knows, or at least he suspects that his wife hasn't been speaking very nice things about him in person, that's why... He didn't go as himself, he went as this... Well, the restraining order, which we find about, out about later in the episode, too. Which is why he puts on this whole uh, mojo character. Um, we can really sort of worry and feel for this little girl in her, her way. Absolutely. She's adorable. She's like the typical innocent child that any writer-director would put on screen to make us feel and fear for them. Yeah, she's... I think it's just the whole look of the bright pink pyjamas clutching on the dolly, the blonde hair, the blue eyes, and this is a personal thing, dear listeners, so I hope this isn't bumming out too hard, but she kind of reminds me of what I would imagine my mother to look like at about five (laughs) or six years old. (laughs) Not far off it, actually. Not far off it at all. But um, it's that whole depiction of innocence and that beautiful side of innocence where where an adult would probably be terrified or angered or put into flight or fight mode by an invisible creature invading our domain a child just accepts it and when they're given gifts and spoken to in a friendly manner it's only when taken away from the safety of the home and when Mojo unmasks and reveals true face that she actually becomes scared and we see that she's actually been very well taught by her mother not to get in a car with strangers, not to trust strangers. Sadly, and I know he's a criminal, but as a dad, I can really sympathise with uh, Lloyd Ventrix, who's the the Invisible Man, the villain in this episode, because he is a dad, and I don't think that any parent should tell their child, your dad is a bad man, stay away from him, unless he's hurt that child, and we don't see any evidence of that. It's true. What we can see is that um, there's been some hurt caused by him to the family. So we can sort of feel for the mother's perspective and wonder maybe there is something that's justified in the fear and the apprehension and the genuine anger that we get from the mother, from Helen, I think her name was. Yes. We can really say that something must have happened in such a way that he's deserves a bad guy and we see him sort of progress into that but it also makes me wonder if that's actually just truly his nature or if that's the effect of the invisibility technology that he was affecting his mind it's a bit of both because I see evidence in the episode again it's so cleverly written that he's someone who fell in love obviously both of them quite young because she even the mother of Helen looks young even with the seven eight year old child at most yep um that he turns up in a suit, he's trying to be all fancy and charming. Maybe when they first met, he put on the airs of a successful businessman and he just was a common crook and a thief the whole time. And 
it was just a sense of betrayal that she'd li- he'd lied to her the whole time, married her, had a child, and he was nothing of the sort, and she didn't realise until he was in prison. So it could be something as simple as that. We can really speculate about the Absolutely. whole time, but that's how well realised this little vision of a nuclear yeah. family is. All of these little versions are right, because there's enough leeway that you can put any sort of story around it but that doesn't change the events that yes the rather rough split of this family caused we see exactly where they've ended up and it leads to a great story which is something i want to talk about now is now that we've talked about this ventrix man with how he's tried to handle re-entering his daughter's life now i want to talk to him about to you about him as the invisible man tussling yes. batman because he gives Batman a real good going, which I would say is another indicator to Batman's youth. Oh, yes. Batman's newness to the Ooh. whole crime-fighting thing. Because we've talked about trying to put a date to this version of Batman here in the early season. This is the first couple of years of his career. No easily. Doubt. Easily. Because once he's dealt with like your League of Assassins and your Big Bats... Mm. Being able to fight an invisible man would be not much trouble at all because of his because of his hearing. And even we get that at the beginning of the episode when everyone in that charity auction mm-hmm. or that jewellery market deal was Oh, where's my jewellery going? Help are being robbed. But Batman has footsteps and knows exactly mm-hmm. where to go. That's how sharp his senses are. Yes. Sure, maybe some of his gear sort of heightens that. I know I don't know if they're still practicing, but I'm very aware of a vigilante here in the UK called the Yeovil Ninja. <laughs> yes, indeed. He was on um, a comedy skit show of a comedian that you and I both like. Um, he talks about the fact that he uses hearing aids to improve his hearing yeah. when now on a patrol. So I imagine Batman has some acuity for that, to be able to like project his hearing or his senses Techno- technologically, if that's a word. But he still knows what to look for. So this would be something that his training would have to heighten, but not here. Here we have a Batman up against something that he really doesn't know how to handle, Mm -hmm. and we see him suffer for it a couple of times, actually, in the episode, until he is able to level the playing field with smoke or paint or water. Absolutely, but we all know that the Batman of the comics, the Batman of today, wouldn't even, again, necessarily need to rely on hearing. He'd have infrared vision to see the guy's body heat. Or the electricity generated to make that plastic that he's wearing invisible in the first place. So this is clearly a Batman starting off in his career, still used to dealing with street-level crime. And this, again, even though he's a normal human being, the ability to become invisible is putting him on the path to a metahuman adversary. And this is the slow progression where you'll see, and this is another beautiful part of this series is you do see Batman grow and become more awesome. But I actually love seeing the vulnerable side of Batman because that, to me, again, is the most heroic aspect of the character. He's not indestructible. He's not unbeatable. He's not invulnerable. He can take a hit, but he'll keep getting right back up and find a way to take his villain down. And that's why I love Batman so much. We talked a lot about the fact that why you find Batman so heroic is because deep down he is still just a man, no superpower, mm. no alien DNA. He does what he does because he has to. Because that sense of righteousness inside himself compels him to do the right thing consistently. And that's why you instilled in me that he's still one of the strongest like archetypal heroes in most kinds of fiction, yeah. to be honest. And that's very true. But... In terms of, like, 
And this is something that was a question that was sort of rattling around in my head. Um, I always imagined Batman as this figure of justice that stalked the night mm-hmm. from his training with the ninjas wherever. He always made a pride of being able to be stealthy and elusive, so much so that he even does perfectly in this episode the disappearing act better than Vetrius does in The Be yes. Invisible Man. When he's talking to uh, Helen, the wife, she explains how recently she's seen the daughter, and then he's gone. Mm-hmm. No no footsteps, no movement, nothing. You'd still get that from Ventrix. He's an invisible man. He's just in a suit. He's not been trained the way Batman has. Do you think, then, Batman would benefit from a safer version of this technology? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It'd be his entire ballpark. But I want to touch on what you said, that in this episode, without being invisible, he's invisible. I found that that was a recurring theme from the start of the show to the end of it. If you think the way he got into the lab, the guy who helped develop the, the stuff, he walks straight past him hmm. into the office, moves around in the office, opens the files, and again, he, he alludes to the mother and he escapes at the very end of the episode after talking to Kimmy, where we think, oh, Kimmy's got her actual real uh, invisible friend in the shape of Batman now, but it actually was Batman that was there and he's gone. His arsenal would definitely benefit. Even further, still, when he was in the lab and that one scientist pushed the tray, the towels and shelves of stuff, he wasn't there. He'd already gone. He'd already already slipped out to be able to, like, strong-arm this one scientist to find out what was going on. Mm. It's true that the training needed to be truly stealthy is better used and better, much more effective than the invisibility suit that this man was using. So, oh, he's training, absolutely. I don't know if um, my education or miseducation, depending on how you'd like to look at it, of Batman has has got with you, but there was a brilliant time um, during Grant Morrison's run after Bruce Wayne returned seemingly from the dead where he took on uh, the guise of the Insider. And this was a guy who was Bruce Wayne um, in a suit of armour which could turn him invisible, which had powers. And there had been several occasions throughout Batman's AC history where he's had powers for a limited time or suits of armour that enhance his strength or whatever. But he always ends up ditching them because he says they become crutches. He becomes reliant on them. It dulls his natural abilities and senses. He thinks that he's better off being the Batman unsullied untarnished with either all that technology or all the superpowers and that's there's something about that purity of it which again adds to his mystique and his awesomeness that he thinks that superpowers would actually make him worse he's chosen the training and the skills that he has Mm. very specifically he's he went about the world with his regime and a fine-tooth comb because he knew exactly what he needed to protect the city he cares about. He needed a way to be able to strike fear, move silently, but was able to dissect a crime scene and the inner workings and the knowledge of exactly where he would need to go to be able to catch this kind of collar at this particular night involving this kind of illegal activity. That's why I remember that excellent run um, back when it was him 
uh, working against the KG Beast right before Bane showed oh, up yeah. in Nightfall. Jim Starlin's run was fantastic. It was brilliant. There was one particular issue where it started with him looking over maps of Gotham, but not paying much attention because he knows his city. Yes. He says that to be a crowdfighter of his kind, to know the city very well is so key and so important. That's why when he went to Moscow to try and track the KGB East, mm-hmm. he spent the entire flight looking at maps. Mm-hmm. That kind of research, that kind of that, uh, intellectual backing and the physical training he would need is the only tool he will ever really need. Those superpowers, those enhanced suits, they would suit him up to fight a specific threat. Yes, absolutely. But then once that specific threat is dealt with, that particular thing just becomes another tool to be put on the shelf to hopefully not be used again. Totally. Totally right. It's like um, the first post-crisis on Infinite Earths meeting between Batman and Superman in the legendary Man of Steel miniseries where Superman encounters them for the first time but by grabbing Batman's Batline in mid-swing and, and flying through the air with Batman hanging on it but then Batman lets go and then Superman can't find him even with his telescopic vision extra vision whatever else and he says but I thought he was just a man I had no new way of knowing that he could turn invisible or anything like that and then Batman steps out onto a roof and said invisibility is a relative thing. Sometimes you can just having an unmatched knowledge of the city you're in, yeah, and knowing where to hide and how to hide. And that, to me, is what we see in this very episode: a Batman who does not need a cloak of invisibility. He can become one with the shadows and one with the night, and that is part of his mystique and his awesomeness. It's also that's also true stealth. That's true stealth that's something you can't fake. That is years of practice and training, and he doesn't need the technology that Ventrix had. Not even a little bit. But uh, a marvel of science like that is still an impressive thing to see, even with the negative side effects to it. But we get possibly, like, George Lucas prequels-esque walking and talking dialogue, but not not without any point. We get... Uh, real uh, analysis of Bruce Wayne trying to figure out where this technology yes. came from and we get it with the first appearance of a very key, oh, admittedly indeed. somewhat minor but still very key member of Batman's extended family, the first appearance in the show of Lucius Fox, who I genuinely forgot was in the series altogether you Believe it or not um, he vanished in the comics for many many years and his resurgence in the animated series led to his resurgence in the comics um, so it was a, a weird thing where he did appear in the comics, was forgotten about, and this story, this series helped bring him back. And I didn't realise until I looked at the closing title at the beginning, he's, he's such a masterful, well, not just voice actor, such a masterful actor, that um, Brock Peters played um, Lucius Fox in this show. And again, as we said week by week with some of the guest stars, you forget the legends of stage and screen that have been part of this show. I don't know if I, I must have mentioned slightly to you about Brock Peters. He's um, probably the one guy who's been in more geek legend shows than anybody else. He was in the original Battlestar Galactica series. He prosecuted um, the original Starbuck, Dirk Benedict. He was in Star Trek as Admiral Cartwright in Star Trek's 4, 5 and 6. Um, ended up being a baddie helping the Romulans in the Undiscovered Country. And... 
and this is showing my real nerd cred <laughs> from um, 80 oh blimey uh, 85 86 I believe it was to Less, no, you're right. Um, around about Empire Strikes Back, 81. 1981 to about 1995-1996. He was actually the other Darth Vader. Um, American Radio serialised the original Star Wars trilogy yes. as full cast audio dramas. Mark Hamill and um, Anthony Daniels were involved in Star wow. Wars and Empire, absolutely. And um, he was Darth Vader in that. And I've got to dig them out for you. I've still got them on tape yes audience you heard that right i own the show as part of analog media and yeah brock peters who knew this show has a remarkable habit of being able to remind us loving listeners of real icons of unexpected popular culture uh this actor who i'm very grateful to see brock peters he's um that just that stole's uh, audio drama alone is something I genuinely did not know existed it's fantastic because it's not just the original trilogy it's like director's cut to the original trilogy it's got all the stuff that was cut out with uh, Big Starlighter and uh, going for Womp Rats uh, in their speeders and whole things like that and Luke actually making his lightsaber oh so stuff, the that, Jedi. stuff that really ought to have happened on screen but just didn't absolutely but then again like a run of what 15 years 81 to 96 yeah, I mean, we're talking each, especially Star Wars and Empire, they were really long. Um, they were a good, if memory serves, good five, six hours each. And then Jedi was a good nearly three or four hours. That's, I truly cannot believe that this is a piece of media. In a pantheon of stuff as big as Star Wars, especially considering the releases of stuff like Rise of Skywalker and yeah. uh, Mandalorian. There's a piece of media like that that technically hasn't really fallen out of favour with what's changed I've been offered a hell of a lot of money for those tapes and I don't know if to this day those audio dramas have ever been released digitally and if they have I need to get them because cassettes as you know they're one chew up away from dying forever and they're bloody brilliant yes they are yeah again I have never never knew these pieces of media existed so they are something I am very eager to listen to I have a long and boring trade ride coming up as of the timing of this timing of this recording well I've still got my old Walkman and it works if you want to hear them but please don't let them chew no up. no no no. I, I wouldn't know I've never used a tape before but we're circling away to a galaxy far behind rock away. Peters thank you and may he rest in peace what a legend. Yeah, we're cycling away from a galaxy far, far away, coming back to the main streets of Gotham, where Lucius Fox's uh, a vision of the upper management of uh, Wayne Enterprises has made his welcome appearance here. Yes. And now that I'm aware that he's back again, I'm sure we'll see him again, right? Well, again, um, in the comics, he's a big deal now. He's taken up residence with Bruce in the Batcave after the demise of Alfred, which I can't believe is still a thing, and I'm heartbroken by it, and I'm looking forward to his uh, tribute episode, tribute issue, which is coming out in the next couple of weeks, but yeah, Lucius Fox, um, like I said, he, he went from important character to disappearing, to semi-important character, to a mainstay of Batman's family, and thanks largely due to, again, Morgan Freeman's fantastic yeah. version of the character in the Christopher Nolan trilogy. I would expect the man who played God, that one lawyer in Ted, and the <laughs> man in charge of uh, James McAvoy's uh, Assassin's Creed cult to put a really good spin on a really, really key character. So, yeah, I'd say Lucius Fox's importance 
came from Morgan Freeman's great performance, but also, I'd say, this performance. Oh, totally. I mean, if you look at the two best Lucius Foxes, which is undoubtedly Brooke Peters in this show, and you'll get to see that as the episodes progress and we see more of him, but also Morgan Freeman are two actors renowned and legendary for their voices. Yes. I mean, the fact that Brock Peters' range... In this, it's, it's quite lilting, it's quite lyrical, but this is the man who played Darth Vader for 15 years. Longer. Longer, um, yes. I, I a longer recorded period of time, even than James Earl Jones. He was like 246 and a, a, lot, a tiny little bit of episode three. So, and of course, Rogue One. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Um... So, Empire came out 81? 81, 82, something like that. I can't remember. I was young, yes. 77 was the original. So, and this and this audio drama was commissioned after that. Yes. Uh, where he So, he went into this project aware that he had to follow James L. Jones. Yes, indeed. Giving the, one of the greatest plot twists yes, in fiction. I would say that... Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. Then I really respect the casting people behind Batman, yeah, animated series for being able to get a voice actor with that mm-hmm. kind of gravitas behind to play such a light character. Yeah, uh, but an important character in the Batman mythos. Very much so. Very much so. And uh, a light introduction to him, but then again, uh, like I said at the beginning, a very much an offbeat. But we talked about this a lot: the vision of Batman preserving innocence and defending peace. And it's definitely something I think he did very well here. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is another one of those episodes where we see the more tender side of the Dark Knight. And it's something I keep circling back to, that this is a man who lost his family. And he wants to make amends. And he's seen this little girl, Kimmy, brilliantly portrayed by uh, Elizabeth Moss, and her mother, Helen, played by Jean Smart, another well-renowned uh, TV and movie icon in America. And he just feels for this kid. So much so that I do think that that wasn't the last midnight visit he paid her over the months and years afterwards. We see Batman lo- looming over the children caught up in the crossfire of his adventures. We see him with the mayor's son, and we see him with the junior investigators from I Have Batman in My Basement. brilliant. He makes that effort to check in on people, just to make sure they're recovering, make sure they're going forwards okay. So I sincerely hope that he regularly does a rounds to sort of check in on these children to make sure they're still being nice, to make sure they're not affected too badly by what they've seen. Like a weird, caped, malevolent Santa. (laughs) Or a bat-winged angel. Mm, Which is something I think you really enjoyed in the one scene where he fought with Ventrix, just swinging over in the silhouette of the bat shape over the cement. It was so showy. It was great. This show can do things which, viewed from a certain aspect, can seem like the ultimate in cheese, but I applaud them. Like you said, that bit, with that bat silhouette. It's so showy. Oh, it's great. It's great. I can't fault it. I love, I love it so it. much, but yeah. it's so showy. It's <laughs> them appealing to uh, all spectrums of ages. Yes. Uh, younger audience will be well, like, oh, well, cool, it's the bat sign, yeah. yay. And then it's also appealing to the mature viewers yeah. who remember the f- Adam West. Uh, yeah, 
absolutely it appeals to every fan of batman from the camp chintzy to the figure of the night and the shadows it's it's just archetypal batman archetypal batman uh dealing with an old-timey archetypal villain done in a new batman way. yeah that's actually one of the best iterations of an invisible man uh, i remember seeing i'd forgotten a lot about that episode yeah particularly the visuals and the direction which really stand out to me and again it seems like these little episodes that we forget about are sometimes the ones that end up being the most memorable on second repeat view. Between this one, I've got Batman in my basement, the one with the sewer king, the one with the slaves yeah. taken away to work in the circle villains' minds. <laughs> Those ones are strong enough stories in themselves to make you think, yeah, that's Batman doing the everyday thing, because this is these are the kinds of stories that happen between great crises mm. of supervillains just bent on destroying the city. Because supervillains get hashing a scheme to destroy the city, that's... Ten a penny. Yeah. These stories are actually... Special. What, special. And that's probably what Batman got into crime fighting for. Yeah. The supervillains thing may have been a side, a side effect, which I honestly is a theory I want to argue with whenever someone tells me that art theory. I completely agree with you. Hmm. I completely agree with you. I, I, I'm he sure. set off to look after the little guy, and yeah. the other things are a byproduct. I completely yeah. agree with that. Yeah, but that, but the argument that a lot of people have, including Hugo Strange in the Arkham City games, um, says that supervillains are a side effect of Batman's presence, and that whole bit at the end of the Batman Begins movie of um, Gary Oldman and Jim Gordon talking about escalation. Now you're wearing a mask, jumping off rooftops to take this guy with the Joker cards. I dispute that. There's some evidences where it's okay, where it can work out that Batman created, uh, quote-unquote, some of these villains, but I don't see that necessarily being a thing. Well, the opposite was made true in Gotham, wasn't it? It's true. It's very much true. I think that's partly why that show exists. Yeah. And I love that show. I don't yeah. care what people say. But um, I have to say that um, the other thing that this episode did extremely well was balance different moods. It started off as a horror film, but that car chase at the end with Batman holding onto the invisible car and zooming past guys sitting on doorsteps and then saying, oh, I didn't know he could fly. And the humour, it ran so many emotions, this one episode. I loved that. We even get humour again much earlier into the episode where Batman's shouting at nothing and the builder's just like, me? <laughs> yes. I know you're in here. Well, yeah, I'm sitting here eating my sandwich. Of course I'm in here. And then stuff starts moving and the builder's like, no, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And again, thank you to Dan Reber for directing a great, great episode. And Martin, Marty Pasco, Pasty Marco, I salute you, sir. Wonderful piece of writing. So, as always, takeaways, good or bad, something that's stuck in your head about this one particular episode. The actual spectacle of Batman surfing an invisible car mm -hmm. and the remarkable driving of Ventrix going to be able to yeah. drive against the grain of traffic in an invisible car and the initiative of the other drivers to swerve the way out of a swooping Batman. Um, that just, that's what a dramatic climax should be, people. <laughs> 
That's some Mission Impossible spy-fi nonsense. Would you not love to see a live-action version of that? Wouldn't that just be incredible? Yeah. Matt Reeves. Shovel face. Ron Pattinson, if you're listening to this right now, you know what the people want. Do it. You know what the people want. Absolutely do it. What about you, sir? I've got to say to you, as again, as a writer and as someone who's studied creative writing, do you not think that some of these standalone episodes... The scripts should be presented to anyone learning screenwriting as a way to do it right. How to get 20 minutes of terrific drama on screen. Like I said in the opening to this review, I didn't really guess, but just sort of like educatedly surmised that, oh, this is a man Mm. trying to reconnect with his daughter, trying to buy his way into, into her good graces. But the emotional ride that we took to get there made the story its own. The fact they were able to convey that Mm. clear enough Mm -hmm. in the first minute and a half. Before it was even revealed to be a fact. Yeah. Yeah. But then that revelation wasn't beaten to death over the course of the rest of the story. And we still get the beautiful movement of Bruce Wayne seeing something go wrong. Bruce Wayne talking to his colleagues at Wayne Enterprises Batman doing the detective thing of rummaging through a filing cabinet and doing the thing that all Snoopy like creepers do and put the torch in his mouth so that he can read the file. That's the most human thing I've ever seen. And it's not something you ever really expect Batman to do because this is still an early Batman where he wouldn't have the night vision. Yeah. The way that they're able to condense down these stories so well the editors should be able to just like truncate yeah. everything so that it Absolutely. still conveys everything without ever feeling jumpy it's a real testament to concise precise writing yeah absolutely couldn't agree more well I think we've said as much as we can really say about another brilliant standalone episode of the show so that was uh, see no evil Batman, the animated series, episode 15. Um, I've been Steve Ray. I um, appear across DC Comics News and Dark Knight News. And you can find those two wonderful sites just by doing darknightnews.com or dccomicsnews.com in your browser. And on social media across Tumblr, YouTube, uh, Twitter and Facebook at dccomicsnews at dknews.com. Adam, where can the world and his mother find you, sir? I also write a great deal for Dark Knight News and DC Comics News, reviewing many titles. You can find me on our original website, fantasticuniverses.com, writing about my one true love, tabletop gaming. You can find me at twitch.tv forward slash no ordinary heroes, most Tuesday night streaming Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at IzzetTinkerer, I-Z-Z-E-T Tinkerer. Ah, you did it the American way this week. Trying to be inclusive to all of the ears across the world. Well done, sir. Very proud of you. You can read my writings across DC Comics News and Dark Knight News just by doing a simple search engine f- uh, search, funnily enough, for Steve J. Ray. And this show is one of three on the Dark Knight News DC Comics News Network. You can also find the original DC Comics News podcast where we talk everything DC. Movies, TV, streaming, comic books, video games, you name it, on a weekly basis. And then we have the Spinner Rack where Seth, uh, our DC Comics News 
buddy uh, looks at his favorite five books every week because there's so many good comic books out there which one do you want to spend your money on listen to the show and you can get some really great ideas and of course there's i am the night the show adam and i bring to you with love and passion every single week and all these shows can be found on apple google play stitcher spotify and wherever you find good podcasts please do keep giving us the feedback i love talking to people online about this show and seeing so many fans of the series uh, come out and, and say that they're enjoying this show is, is, is wonderful to hear and them telling us things like what's a Z is awesome <laughs> it's, it's very easy to look back on a near quarter century piece of media like this mm-hmm. and talk about how it's dated how the episodes are square and pan scan how a lot of the cultural stuff doesn't isn't really relevant anymore I think it's important that you and I put the positive and cheerful tone that we do put on it mm-hmm. because Everyone in the free world, even the nice people on Australia, has agreed that this is the finest vision of Batman we've seen in visual media. And so much of it hasn't aged at all. If anything, it's scarily relevant now. Oh, it is. But you'll get a lot of naysayers because the internet's very loud. But you will not find that negativity here. We talk about this show with love and critiques where needed, but wherever they needed. Yes, rarely so far. Yes, that has been the I Am The Night podcast with Adam Ray, He Is The Night, Steve Ray, I Am The Night, together we are The Night, and everyone out there just needs to read more comics and watch more Batman. Thank you for listening. Bye now.